Most leaders and organizations recognize the importance of balancing the work of today with the ideas that will become the work of tomorrow. But almost none of us have been taught how to do this. On this episode, what history, research, and science show to be the best ways to nurture new ideas. This is Coaching for Leaders, episode 418. Produced by Innovate Learning, maximizing human potential. Greetings to you from Orange County, California. This is Coaching for Leaders, and I'm your host, Dave Stahoviak. Leaders are inborn, they're made. And this weekly show helps you discover leadership wisdom through insightful conversations. A word that many of us are thinking about often in organizations is the word innovation. How do we continue to do the good work that our organization has been doing at the same time innovate for the future, either the next product or service, or perhaps making the current existing work of the organization a lot better. Today's guest, uh, an expert in this for sure, as someone that's going to help us to really frame our thinking on this, more importantly, thinking that can drive us to have the best behaviors for organizations. And as you'll hear about today, really create the structure that will make that work. I'm so glad to welcome to the show Safi Bacall. He is a second-generation physicist, the son of two astrophysicists, and a biotech entrepreneur. He's a PhD out of Stanford, and he co-founded a biotechnology company developing new drugs for cancer, leading its IPO, and serving as its CEO for 13 years. Safi has presented at approximately 130 banking conferences, investor events, and medical meetings around the world, as well as at leading academic institutions. He worked with President Obama's Council of Science Advisors on the future of national research, and he is the author of the new book, Loon Shots, How to Nurture the Crazy Ideas that Win Wars, Cure Diseases, and Transform Industries. Safi, I couldn't help but notice you mentioned in the official bio on your website that your wife and children own together about 37 of the Elephant and Piggy books. And I don't think we're at 37 in our household, but we're definitely in double digits. And I was thinking about that in the context of your book. These books are so popular now. And I bet there was a time that that Mo Willems' writing was a little bit outside the norm. <laughs> and I, I, thinking about that in the context of what your work of so many of the things that we take for granted in tech advances were not obvious when they were just ideas, were they? You're absolutely right. I, I once read the story of Dr. Seuss well before Mo Williams and well before cartoon version of kid stories, which I read every night to my daughter. Thankfully, she's just starting to go past the Gerald and Piggy books. <laughs> but Dr. Seuss was rejected by every major publisher. He was walking down Madison Avenue in New York. He had his manuscript, his manuscript for his first children's graphic story under his arm. And he literally bumped into on the street a college friend who asked him, oh, what do you got there? And he said, oh, it's this you know, manuscript for a kid's story. I'm going home to burn it. That's it. I'm done. And the guy said, you know, I just took a job at uh, so-and-so publisher. It's right across the street here. You want to just come in? Boom. The cat in the hat was born. And, you know, decades of Dr. Seuss being the most beloved story in the world. And so that was an example of a loon shot. Every publisher dismissed the idea as crazy, but it wasn't. The book is called Loon Shots. And it, of course, begs the question, what is a loon shot? 
Well, everybody knows what a moonshot is. A moonshot is a big goal or a destination like curing cancer or eliminating poverty. But the ideas that really make a big difference, the ideas that change the course of science or business or history rarely arrive with blaring trumpets and red carpets dazzling everybody with their brilliance. They're usually dismissed for years or even decades like Dr. Seuss was, and their champions are written off as crazy. And since there wasn't a good word in the English language for that, I made one up. <laughs> That's awesome. Yeah, because a lot of the times we think about the traditional innovation as something like a moonshot. We've seen, you know, JFK in front of Congress, you know, talking about that big goal. And one of the things that's really fascinating, by the way, I love this book. It is just fascinating, not only from the science but the history of how much you learn about things that we all take for granted as ideas that should have emerged and yet in many cases started as a loon shot. But more often that is the case, right? It, it's, it's the fact that these ideas had to be nurtured and that there's a process of going through this and there's a structure that helped these ideas to emerge. Absolutely right. You mentioned, for example, the JFK, the John F. Kennedy story with declaring in 1961, he declared in front of Congress that we would put a man on the moon by the end of the decade. And that was the original moonshot. When he declared that, he was widely applauded. But what most people don't know, the story behind that, is that 40 years earlier, a man named Robert Goddard suggested how we might get there. What Goddard suggested was the idea of liquid-fueled jet propulsion. In other words, a rocket going into outer space. And he began to demonstrate it and show how it might work. And he was completely ridiculed. The New York Times, for example, wrote an editorial, wrote a short piece on that and said, this so-called Dr. Goddard with his ideas, he doesn't understand the basic laws of physics that we teach our kids in high school every day, namely the laws of action and reaction make rocket flight in space impossible. 14 years after Goddard died, the day after the Apollo 11 successful launch to the moon. It was July 16, 1969. The Times issued a retraction. It said, quote, apparently rocket flight does not violate the laws of physics. And, <laughs> you know, and quote, the Times regrets the error. So Kennedy's declaration was the original moonshot. A moonshot is a goal. Goddard's idea was a classic loon shot, and it was dismissed for decades. And the reason understanding the difference, one's goal, one's how we get there, the reason understanding the difference is so important is also in that story. So for example, the Goddard's ideas were neglected in the United States and in the US military for the next 20 or so years, but not in Nazi Germany. In fact, the German scientists read Goddard's papers and came up with the idea of Jets, jet engines, jet engines for planes, for example, and missiles. The jet engine, the Messerschmitt 262, was the first jet plane used in warfare, and it outclassed anything that any of the Allies had. It flew well over 100 miles an hour faster than any Allied plane. And the missiles that the Germans built, especially the V-2 rocket, flew at supersonic speeds, and the Allies had no answer. But that's why understanding this difference and learning how to nurture loon shots is so important because if you get that wrong, then those mistakes 
can be fatal. One of the things I know you hear often from leaders of organizations is, hey, we're, we've got a successful product, we've got a successful service, and yet we know the importance of innovation, but how do we do it? And one of the really interesting distinctions you've uncovered in your work is the distinction between the artists and the soldiers in the organization. Tell me more about that distinction. Sure. So I'm getting calls all the time now, many a week from executive teams, leadership teams, CEOs, and it's essentially the same question, the same call in two flavors. We have this core franchise. It could be a core product. We could be so many industries, you know, newspaper industry, film studios, tech companies, insurance. We have this core product, core franchise that's doing well. How do we nurture the next big thing, the next idea that may seem crazy right now? How do we do both at the same time? And the two flavors are, one, our core product is doing pretty good. We just want to stay ahead of the curve. We don't want to be killed by some competitor with a new idea. Two, our core franchise is a disaster. It's rapidly sinking. So for example, newspaper company with print newspapers, that's not doing well. So it's the same question, as you say, with two different flavors. But the answer is pretty similar in both cases. And usually, it's not a 10-second answer, but there are three things that I talk about. And the, the first thing starts with understanding the problem. And I think of these three things, since I don't have a very good verbal memory, I think of it visually as ice cube, garden hoe, and heart. Ice cube, garden hoe, and heart. The first thing beginning by understanding the problem. As you say, there are these, there are two types of folks, there are two types of functions that you need inside a company. And one is the artists or the creatives or the designers who are working on new ideas. And the second is the soldiers that are turning those ideas into products that you can deliver on time, on budget, on spec consistently to customers. There's a longer story about why there are two phases of organization whenever you bring people into a group. You can actually work out the underlying mathematics of that, of why there are two types of incentives and two types of forces, and you'll be in one phase where you favor artists and another phase where you favor soldiers. In one case, you favor embracing risk and taking crazy ideas. In the other case, you favor execution and discipline and on time. But the important thing is just that there are these two ways of organizing, these two types of phases, which are good for these two different groups. And so the ice cube starts by understanding there's the solid, rigid phase, which is good for the soldiers, and the fluid, liquid phase, which is good for the artists. In one case, you want to get things done on time, on budget, on spec, and minimize risk. In the other case, you want to try lots of stuff and see what works. You actually want to fail a lot. And if you're not failing a lot, you have a problem. So the first thing starts by understanding the problem, understanding the ice cube, understanding that the these two phases. And I think of it, to keep it simple, I think of it as the beautiful baby problem. The artists who come up with a new idea, whether you know in my field, which was biomedical for many years, the scientists who come up with a new way of understanding what's happening inside the cell when you have a particular disease, or if you're in tech, the designers who come up with an elegant new code or a beautiful new design for a product, they see their new thing as a beautiful baby. Look at this wonderful thing. It's early stage, but look at how beautiful it is. The soldiers look at that same thing and see a shriveled up raisin covered in vomit and poop. I mean, 
Okay, I'm a new dad, so this is sort of really <laughs> this how re- I think. this is reality. <laughs> this is this is really how I think about life now. And you know what? They're both right. There is a beautiful baby underneath. It is covered in vomit and poop. The soldiers are thinking, look, uh, you know, take even the example of the the Xerox Park guys who developed so many of the early personal computer technologies, whether it was Windows or graphical unifer- user interface. And those guys were seeing the beautiful babies the, of what a personal computer could be. The soldiers there who were the marketing guys, the people out in the field talking to customers, what they saw was some expensive new technology that failed at the time that was really slow, difficult to learn, and inconvenient. They were both right. There's a beautiful baby. There's also vomit and poop. And so the first thing to understand are the, these two, the ice cube. There are these two phases. They speak two different languages. They see the world in two different ways, and they generally don't like each other. And that's okay. That's completely okay. These are the kinds of people or the kinds of projects and tasks that they're assigned are enormously different. And so the first thing is starting by understanding that there are these two functions, the artists and the soldiers, and it's okay if they don't like each other. One is making all the money. The other is spending all the money. People who are making all the money aren't really thrilled with the people who are spending all the money. It's normal. It's natural. They're two different phases. Another conclusion you draw is that leaders who want to nurture new ideas should think and act more like gardeners. How so? So the second thing I think of is the garden hoe. And that is starting from understanding that the failure point in most innovation in nurturing new ideas is rarely in the supply of new ideas. It's almost never in the supply of new ideas. If you put a bunch of people, put 10 people in a room, you can get a a hundred ideas. It's always in the transfer between these artists and soldiers. So what do I mean by a garden hoe? I mean, if you want to nurture new ideas inside your organization, you don't want to lead like this classical, mythical model of the great manager who's a Moses who stands on top of a mountain and raises his or her staff and anoints the chosen project, like the, the myth of Steve Jobs, you know, pointing out the iPod and so forth. Instead, you want to manage like a careful gardener. You want to manage the touch and balance between these two groups, because that's the failure point. When you leave the room, no amount of preaching, hey, everybody be innovative, no amount of appointing CIOs, chief innovation officers, no amount of posters in the wall or singing kumbaya or showing videos of innovation is going to do anything. When you leave the room, the folks responsible for the new ideas are the artists on the one hand who come up with the new idea and the soldiers who need to turn that into a real product and deliver it on time, on budget, on spec. If they're not getting along, if they're not speaking, if they're not communicating well, if the ideas, the baby stage ideas are not transferring well, it will fail no matter how many nice videos you show or how many nice posters you put on the wall, it will fail because the new products succeed or fail based on the transfer between these two groups. Why? Firstly, if the baby stage ideas stay confined to the group with new ideas, they're just never going to get out in the market and get the data they need to succeed. You have to work to convince the soldiers to try it out, to bring it out into the field. But even more importantly is the transfer the other way back because early stage projects never work well the first time. It's absolutely essential to understand why, to really dig deep, 
and bring that data back into the lab. So that constant cycle, the transfer back and forth between the two groups, that's the key thing to get right. So that's what I mean by the garden hoe, a really great leader, the ones who genuinely build long-lasting, sustainable, innovative companies, are the ones who think of themselves more as gardeners and less as a Moses. So that's the ice cube, is understanding the core of the problem, the difference between these two groups, the ice and the water. The garden hoe is leading like a gardener rather than Moses, managing the transfer between these two groups. And the final one, the heart, is a little more fuzzy, but it's incredibly important. And that's the idea of love your artists and soldiers equally. And that's incredibly important now, especially with all the buzz you see or things you read and magazines and the you know, beautiful cover images that are sort of lionizing or you know, making idols of these great innovators. What that does, if a leader or a leadership team just talks about the great innovator, the great idea, what that does is really piss off and demotivate the 90 plus percent of the company that's working on the core franchise that are the soldiers, for example. So those are the three things, the ice cube, the garden hoe, and the heart. That's kind of the essence of what you need to understand if you want to balance both working on crazy new ideas and innovative new ideas and doing well on your core franchise. This is so fascinating to me of looking at some of the case studies in the book from a leadership standpoint, um, because I think a lot of organizations, they know the importance of putting time and effort to innovation. You see the R&D departments. And it's interesting you brought up Xerox Park as an example of an organization that knew very well to put some of these you know, folks who are there generating ideas. And yet there's a lot of things that didn't work well as far as getting those ideas actually out and used. And it seems to me that from what you've really discovered is that the leaders and the organizations that are able to balance the heart and the communication back and forth between the artists and the soldiers uh, are doing something that's really amazing. And one of the things you quote in the book is saying, when someone challenges the project you've invested years in, do you defend with anger or investigate with genuine curiosity? I find it's when I question the least that I need to worry the most. Absolutely. Those are two different things. The, the, the second one there is the motto I keep in my head of LSC, listen to the suck with curiosity. And the reason I add the curiosity there is connected to sort of the lessons you get as a manager or leader, certainly I received in going to management training sessions and all that sort of stuff about active listening. And a lot of the standard advice is, well, you know, repeat back what you just heard to show that you understood. Well, the problem with that is that when you have poured your heart or soul into something, into a project or into a new idea, and an uh, investor walks away or a customer rejects your pitch or a partner walks out on you. It's just repeating that you heard is not enough. The real gold comes when you keep pulling the thread and saying, help me understand what is it about either my product or my idea or this strategy that isn't quite working for you, that isn't really resonating. The reason that you want to pull and get really curious, you want to take off your defensiveness hat, your hat where you just want to punch them in the face or slap them or whatever, and probe as politely as you can 
you need to be polite. You need to really ask them because it's a gift that they're giving. There's almost no upside in it for them. So any time they take out of their very busy day to walk you through how it could be better is incredibly valuable because you know, many times you might pull on that thread and you don't really hear anything that useful. But a few times, they're aware of a competitor doing something that's better than yours or cheaper than yours or more value-added than yours, and you're just not aware of it. Or they're aware of something about your product that matters to them that you're blind to. And that's what you want. At the end of that thread is a little gold nugget, and you want that gold nugget. And the reason I add listen to this suck with curiosity, that just the act of listening stuff is not enough, but you really want to listen with curiosity, is because it's so hard. If you're the person with a new idea or a new product, it really is like that beautiful baby. It's very hard to hear that nobody likes your baby, but it's even harder to keep asking why. And so that's what I mean by the listen to the suck with curiosity. And that is the thing that I hear. What you described is from folks in organizations who are doing innovation is they'll say things like, I keep running into lots of naysayers, people who say in the soldier part of the organization, right? The larger part of, hey, this isn't going to work. We're not going to be able to do this. It's not valuable. It breaks, all those things. And what I'm hearing you say is that the the organizations and the leaders that really are able to create some amazing things are those that are willing then, in the midst of that expected outcome, <laughs> of to then lean in and to start there of asking questions and to being curious and to find out what's not working. And if, if those who are willing to lean in and to have that, what you call dynamic equilibrium between the two and, and listen and be curious, that that makes a big difference. Absolutely. So if you're the person with the new idea and trying to champion the new idea, it's very important. I, I think of it as LSC, listening to that suck with curiosity, setting aside the defensiveness and saying, why are they not really jumping on my idea? And just keep pulling on that thread. And sometimes you'll find nothing, but sometimes you'll find something very useful. But you, you mentioned the point about resistance from the soldiers. There's some, a similar point there. But very often the resistance from the soldier comes from a failure to understand these two different groups and their two different structures, their two different incentives. It's two completely different mindsets and two completely different languages. And I'll, I'll give you an example of what I mean by that. And once you understand these differences, that can help you think about how to manage them and how to bridge them. But I'll give you an example. The English word risk. It's one word. It's four letters. You think it would mean the same thing to everybody, but it doesn't. For example, let's say you're a soldier, a commander, and you're going out into battle, and it's a high-risk situation. It's a high-risk battle. And you tell, you come up with some ideas and you figure out how to de-risk it. You tell your, your general, I have de-risked this situation. And the general says, that's fantastic. You've taken all the risk out of this battle. That's just a fantastic accomplishment. Now imagine going to an artist and saying, you've de-risked your art. You've taken all the risk out of your art. Well, that's a horrible thing to say to an artist. In fact, the word risk is a terrible thing for a soldier, but it's a great thing for an artist. You want to push the boundaries. If you're an artist, you want to try 10 things, uh, nine of which may not work. And the one thing that works, that's the huge breakthrough. And if you're not doing that, you're probably not a very good artist. 
Imagine if you're a soldier and you say, you know, your job is to manufacture planes and you say, here's my strategy. I'm going to sit back in a chair. You guys launch 10 planes into the sky and we'll see which nine crash. The one that doesn't, we'll keep. Well, that's a terrible strategy as a soldier. <laughs> right. So the word risk means two completely different things to these groups. So if you want to manage innovation better, you've got to manage that transfer between the artists and soldiers, which starts with understanding the differences. And so you mentioned Xerox Park. So what people get wrong about that history so often, and Xerox Park sort of famously created so many of the building blocks of the personal computer industry from the graphical interfaces and the windows and the mouse and the Ethernet and the laser printer, which were then later copied and taken by others. And there's this sort of famous problem like, why didn't they commercialize it? You know, the management must have been terrible. Well, actually, that, that really misses what happened there and what is such an important lesson for people. Because who created Xerox Park in the first place? Xerox was the original phenomenal one product franchise company. They developed the first billion dollar product, the Xerox photocopier. And they had very good managers who said, well, what happens when this product gets old? We don't know. So why don't we set up a group working on crazy new ideas? So the managers of Xerox were actually the ones who created Xerox Park. What they got wrong is they missed the transfer. What happens was that all these scientists who were really some of the best computer scientists and engineer of the day, of the decade, who invented all these things, when they came up with these ideas, the soldiers, they were selling typewriters, they were selling office products, they were selling photocopy machines. They missed the fact that the soldiers were paid on commission and the soldiers were busy trying to do their job. So when they had these expensive, new, crazy products that would take days of their time to figure out and their customers wouldn't understand, of course they weren't motivated to sell it. So what the leaders got right is they created a group to nurture crazy ideas. What the leaders got wrong there is that they didn't manage the transfer. They assumed that the artists would be these great champions and the ideas would speak from themselves. The moonshots would just take off on their own. And that never happens. If you're a manager or a leader, your number one focus has got to be in managing the transfer between these two groups. Yeah, it's such a fascinating example of what did work, but also didn't work in that situation. And like you said, it's the technology was there, but that component of leadership and communication and creating the dynamic equilibrium just didn't happen. And, and it makes me think of like how many organizations do have that R&D department, the innovation department, but haven't really thoughtfully invested the time and resources in order to ensure that the communication happens well. And one of the other people that you highlight in the book, and I know a lot of people use Steve Jobs and Apple as an example around innovation, but they don't necessarily tell the whole story. And I think Jobs is a really interesting case study in this because he didn't do it well for a long time and then sort of stumbled into this. And I'm wondering if you could share a bit about what you've discovered as you looked into the history of him and Apple. You know, there's this myth now of him as this phenomenal leader and, you know, this great innovator who came up with these new products and he was sort of the Moses on the mountain that anointed these new products. And that's not at all what really happened. And that's not at all 
an accurate history. And in fact, when he led as a Moses, when he led as I am the great innovator and I'm coming up with these new products, it was a complete disaster. So, for example, at his first stint at Apple, when he was in his 20s, that's exactly what he did. He worked with Steve Wozniak and they together came up. He helped promote Wozniak's Apple II product and it uh, did well for a while until it was quickly surpassed by other personal computers. And so Apple was trying to figure out what to do next. And they, you had one group, the majority, trying to work on the Apple III and the other franchise products. And Jobs tried to work on that for a while, but didn't do a great job on the Apple III and then the Lisa, and those were kind of disasters. So eventually, he got directed to a, a, a little project in the corner called the Macintosh Project, which was being developed by another guy named Jeff Raskin. And he said, oh, well, let's do this thing. This sounds good. And he's eventually said, well, wait a minute, this is great, and this is totally different, and now we're the artists, and everyone else at the company working on the franchise is, you know, the, is bozos. So he created, he did absolutely not what we talked about as the heart or the gardener. He did exactly the opposite, and he created a ton of dysfunction. In fact, the people working on the Apple franchise at the time got buttons with pictures of Bozo the Clown on them and a red circle and a sash saying, we're not bozos. There was so much dysfunction and hostility between those two groups, the, what he called the artist working on the Macintosh and the soldiers working on the franchise, that the street between their two buildings was called the DMZ, the demilitarized zone. Mm. And when he eventually launched the Macintosh, there was obviously this great Super Bowl ad and terrific publicity, but the launch was a flop and the sales quickly tanked. The product was too slow, it overheated, not enough memory, not good enough storage. And so customers just didn't want to pay for it. And meanwhile, so many people had left on both sides because of all the hostility and dysfunction, including Steve Wozniak, who had been working on really interesting Apple III projects, that the franchise projects, which were bringing in 90, 95% of the revenue of the company, also tanked. And Apple got really close to bankruptcy, and Steve Jobs was justifiably asked uh, to leave. And then he went and started next and kind of the same, same thing happened. He focused on the product, on the artist and the crazy new ideas, and that product did not do very well. So 12 years later, fast forward, and exactly what happened during those 12 years is another story, a more, an interesting story. But when he got back to Apple, one of the first things he did is appoint Johnny Ive, this legendary artist to lead product design. So anyone who's got an Apple product in their pocket or in their purse or in their wrist, probably designed from Johnny Ive or his group. And then he brought in a guy named Tim Cook, whose previous job was head of inventory at Compaq, where he was known as Attila the Hun of inventory. And if there's a better name for a soldier inside a company, I don't know it. Mm. So he led not by being a Moses on the top of a mountain, but rather by balancing these two, the Johnny Ive and the Tim Cook, and loving both equally. When he died, who was it that took his job? Not Johnny Ive, kind of the ultimate artist, but Tim Cook, the ultimate soldier. It's a fascinating example of the importance of what you said earlier, Safi, which is the heart, right? Of, here's someone who, you know, was name-calling in the organization and created all this animosity and really made a dramatic shift over his career to embracing 
with heart, both of these different parts of the organization and encouraging the dialogue between them. And as a result, being able to innovate at a level that you know most organizations would dream to innovate out of all the creations that Apple's had in the last couple of decades. Sure, that was an example of all three things we mentioned, the ice cube, the garden hoe, and the heart. He understood the separation and the difference between those two groups. He led much more like a careful gardener than a Moses on the top of a mountain. And the heart, he learned to love both equally. There's, there's obviously a lot more to it than that and kind of can talk more about that later or can read about it later. But those were kind of the core ideas. And when he was in the last couple of years of his life and talking to one of his biographers and was asked, you know, what are you reflecting on your life? What do you think of as the most innovative product or innovative thing you've done? And he said, well, it wasn't any one of my products. He said, I think the most innovative thing I've done is in how I designed my organization. And so it comes back to kind of those three core things. And such an important message about structure, right? You know, you you speak about it so much in the book and the research of the structure of just thinking about the ice cube and it, it turning from a liquid to a solid and how much organizations we really need. If we can be mindful of structure from a leadership standpoint, especially around innovation, it'll lead us to some really fabulous places. Um, Safi, the book is just marvelous. I have been enjoying it, not only from the lessons on innovation and ideas, it is just fascinating, but so many of the examples you go into of the things that I think culturally a lot of times we think we know what happened around World War II and how Star Wars, the Star Wars franchise was created and Apple and Pan Am and all these amazing stories and stories of failures, but we don't. There's so much in the history behind this. And I've just been fascinated not only from the leadership lessons, but just of understanding a lot more about the history behind it. Uh, for those who, who want to dive in on the book, Anything else you would invite people to do or that's a good starting point for just thinking more about this effectively? Uh, if you want to reach out to me, I'm on Twitter with uh, my name is the hashtag or on my website, loonshots.com. There's a contact form and send me an email. I try to read every email. It has been, as you said, kind of surprising and fun for me because I went in to a cave for a couple of years just to really dig down on some of these histories. And I I didn't know that anybody else would care. So it's very nice to sort of emerge from the cave, blinking into the light and talk to some humans again and see that they, they, <laughs> like, those, they like those stories too. Yeah. Like you said, I've, I've heard elements, like I'm sure you had before you dive into the research, elements of each of these stories. And yet I feel like there's so much of the big picture here. So for those who, and, and especially if part of your work Either you're leading folks who are doing the innovation work in your organization, or you are on that team. This is a must read. I mean, it's for me, it's a game changer as far as how I think about around innovation and ideas. Safi Bacall is the author of Loon Shots How to Nurture the Crazy Ideas that Win Wars, Cure Diseases, and Transform Industries. Safi, thank you so much for this work. Thanks for having me on your show. I know several people who are leading innovation in their organizations right now, and I've already passed along Safi's book to them. If you know someone who is doing that as well, please pass along this conversation to them, and thank you if you do. In addition, several related episodes to today's conversation that will be helpful if you want to dive in further. 
I recommend episode 148, The Four Critical Stories Leaders Need for Influence with David Hutchins. David goes around the world teaching large leadership teams and many organizations how to be better storytellers. And in episode 148, he talked about the four critical stories that almost every leader should have in their back pocket to be able to communicate on a regular basis. So when you listen to that episode, you'll hear the importance of all four of those stories. And as we talked about in today's conversation, storytelling, an important element to being able to nurture ideas. Episode 148 will help you to do that. I recommend also episode 404, How to Build Psychological Safety with Amy Edmondson. We uh, had Amy on a few weeks ago talking about how you can, as an individual leader, build psychological safety within your organization. And of course, we talked about this tension between the soldiers and the artists in most organizations. And of course, if you're going to create an environment where communication happens there, psychological safety is a critical component of that. Episode 404 dives into detail on how to create that kind of an environment in your organization as well. I also recommend episode 408, Get Better at Deep Listening with my guest, Oscar Trimboli. Uh, Safi talked about the importance of listening in this conversation, and he pointed out something that Oscar pointed out almost the exact same thing, word for word, of that we many of us have been taught how to listen by making eye contact and nodding and summarizing what we've heard. And yes, those are important starting principles for listening, but they are starting points, not ending points. And as Oscar talked about in episode 408, really we should be making the shift to listening for meaning. So much more we can do for that. And if you, like me, are always working on getting better at that, episode 408 is a great starting point in addition to all of the work that Oscar Tremboli has done on deep listening and a podcast of the same name as well. So check that out if it'd be useful to you to get better at that skill. All of those episodes are available to you on the coachingforleaders.com website. And in addition, you can activate your free membership over at coachingforleaders.com. When you do, it's going to give you access to my free audio course, 10 Ways to Empower the People You Lead. I have summarized many of the top lessons from the podcast since we've begun airing back in 2011, and that audio course will come to you as soon as you activate your free membership. You can dive in over 10 days, or you can grab the whole thing all at once, depending on what works best for you. In addition, when you set up your free membership, it's going to give you access to a whole bunch of resources on the website, including being able to search every past episode by topic and all of the expert interviews. It includes the weekly leadership guide, the member cast, all the book notes, all my highlights from Loon Shots are included in there, and also my entire database of my personal library. Each week when I find things that are useful online, as many of you do, uh, in addition to sharing them in the weekly guide and sending them out to folks I think would benefit from them, I database them all. And I've given the entire access to that database to you on the coachingforleaders.com website, and you can access that by topic and find articles that would be helpful to your team, your customers, and uh, and your executive leaders. So find that at coachingforleaders.com. Have a fabulous week and see you next week for a conversation on performance measurement. Take care.